You're listening to Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, Episode 14, Edward Xera. Story Trail of Trees is a tribute project started by Springfield businessman Jim Malden in the early 2000s. Then, more than a decade later, the project reached Friends of the Garden at Nathaniel Green Close Memorial Park in Springfield, Missouri. Black gum trees were planted in 2012 at the northern edge of the park and symbolized the legacy left by ethnic community leaders. Each tree stands for an Ozark citizen who has left a lasting positive impact on their community through service, generosity, and tenacity. Each story is maintained and immortalized by a story keeper who has volunteered to ensure the legacy of the storyteller lives on. Ancient Morocco was a part of the Carthaginian Empire, and later, the Roman Empire. With the decline of Rome in 350 AD, barbaric vandals began invading Morocco in 429 AD. In 642 AD, Arabs from Arabia swept into the country and nominally converted Christian Berber inhabitants to Islam. Berbers and Arabs combined to form the Moors, who invaded Spain in 711 AD. By the 11th century, the ruling dynasty of Morocco controlled an empire extending from Spain to Libya. The Moors were driven from Spain in the 15th century. The Xera family has documents relating to property they lost during this period of time when their forefathers were forced out of Spain. A few Portuguese and Spanish settlements were established in Morocco, and the Spanish areas remain to this day. During the next 400 years, Morocco discouraged European settlements and resisted the Turks. In 1800, European powers, particularly France and Spain, began to show interest in Morocco. Germany and Britain disapproved. In 1912, England agreed to France and Spain dividing Morocco into protectorate zones. Tangier and a 50-square-mile area was designated as an international zone administered by Britain, France, Spain, and the U.S. Morocco remained divided until Spain and France recognized her independence in 1956. Morocco was admitted to the United Nations at that time. My story begins in 1901 with a young lady who left her parents and family behind in Kansas, boarded a steamship in New York, and set out alone on a three-week voyage to the continent of Africa. At 23, Maud Carey was headed for Morocco, a small country lying across the northwest corner of Africa. Maud Carey remained in Morocco for 54 years. This courageous, dedicated Baptist missionary ended up in the hometown of my Muslim father and forever changed the course his life would take. My grandfather, Mohamed Kassara, was born in 1880 in Fez, where I still have family today. Grandfather Kassara grew up in a devout Muslim household and was educated to be a Muslim priest. Although not rich, both my grandfather and great-grandfather were considered to be among the intellectuals and actively participated in the progress of the community. My grandmother, Zubida Kassara, was born in 1885. She was the daughter of a Muslim priest 
and was a shurfa. Shurfas are greatly revered in the Muslim faith because they are believed to be direct descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. My father's education, which began when he was seven, involved memorizing the Quran, the basis of all Muslim learning. He soon went to French schools as well. The French coming to Morocco in 1911 brought Western thought and Western technology to the country, and my father's attendance at the French school gave him a wider view of the world that would not have been possible five or ten years before. Studying the basics of reading and writing in two languages was very demanding, and his teachers were strict. My father learned of Ms. Carey's presence in town and the interesting activities taking place in the home of this American lady. Although he had been taught to revere Islam, he was very curious about the strange Baptist missionary. Like many of the other young boys, my father threw his share of rocks at her front door before finally venturing in. Soon he was dropping by Ms. Carey's home several times a week following his regular school day. She was not at all what the conversations he overheard among his Muslim elders had led him to expect. When Grandfather Kassara developed vision problems, my father went over his memorization and the prepared texts for his sermons with him. They engaged in many long discussions about religion. During one such discussion, my father questioned a conversation the Quran stated had taken place between Moses and Muhammad. He pointed out that Moses had lived centuries before Muhammad and wondered how such a conversation could have occurred. When my father continued questioning the Quran, it infuriated my grandfather, and a heated theological argument ensued, which resulted in grandfather insisting my father go live with the Christians, since he sounded just like them. He was 18 when grandfather kicked him out. My father was stunned and devastated at being kicked out of his home. Although he had been curious about the Christian faith and eager to listen and learn, he was still young and uncertain, with mixed feelings and many unanswered questions. He stayed with friends while continuing his education. When final exams rolled around at the French school he attended, his anxiety was magnified by the fact that he was now on his own. He desperately wanted to do well on the exams and prayed both Muslim and Christian prayers about it. My father did well on his exams, but he continued to be troubled by questions about the God of Islam and the God of Christianity. When my father explained his plight to the missionaries, they took him in. It was shortly after this that my father accepted Christ and was baptized into the Christian faith and joined the work of the missionaries. My mother's father, Frederick Keller, was born on November 26, 1862, in Germany. He left Germany with his family, the Kellers, when he was four. They traveled across the Atlantic, up the Erie Canal and the Great Lakes, and settled in Niles, Michigan. My grandparents lived a few years in Arizona, where my mother, Pauline, was born in 1909. During the gold rush, they had a successful truck farm in Prescott, Arizona, selling the vegetables they raised to local miners. It was around this time that my grandfather answered God's call for full-time Christian service. He decided to become a missionary in Morocco and serve God on a full-time basis. In 1919, Germany was defeated and in economic chaos. Many soldiers released from the German army found themselves unemployed. France controlled Algeria and Morocco and needed a large army to suppress the Berbers. Due to the large numbers of German soldiers joining the French Foreign Legion, there were many German-speaking soldiers in that army. Since Grandfather Keller was from Germany, it was his desire to go to Morocco and minister to these German soldiers. 
1920, when my mother was 11, my grandfather and grandmother Keller were finally able to leave the States for Morocco, where the two of them established a very effective ministry. The French had chosen the best students to attend higher education at the French schools, and my father was among those chosen. Since he spoke excellent Arabic and French, he began giving language lessons, which is how he met my mother. Their developing friendship concerned the missionaries. I suspect they feared my father would be less focused on serving God and less at their disposal if he married my mother. Together with my grandmother Keller, the missionaries devised a plan to send my mother away to school in France, hoping this would end their relationship with my father. There is possibly some cultural bias motivating this plot as well. Although she was away for several years, when my mother returned to visit her parents, she discovered the letters, which revealed this meddling in her life by the American missionaries and her mother. She was more determined than ever to marry my father. In October 1931, love triumphed, and my parents were married. They settled in the international zone in Tangier, an area more accepting of a Moroccan becoming a Christian. My older sister, Elizabeth, was born in Tangier in 1933 followed by Paul in 1934. Paul died of dysentery when he was only an infant. Dorothy was born in 1936. I was born in 1937. In 1940, the Germans had invaded Poland and France. Refugees were fleeing Europe, and many were finding their way into Tangier. American passports were mysteriously disappearing and being sold for exorbitant prices on the black market. It was a chaotic, fearful time, and my parents and grandparents were very concerned about the war reaching Morocco. Fear of the German invasion was great. In August, our family joined the Exodus. We flew from Tangier to Lisbon with our American passports. In late August, we sailed on a Greek ship registered under the neutral United States flag. A few weeks later, we arrived in the United States of America in safety. Our family settled in Huntington, Pennsylvania, and my sisters and I began school there. As I looked out the window of my second-grade classroom one morning, a flock of geese were flying ahead in a V formation. As we watched, our teacher told us the V stood for the victory in Europe. I was quite impressed that the geese had chosen such a clever way of keeping us informed. My younger sister, Ruth, was born in Pennsylvania in 1940. Morris followed in 1943. Morris was a blue baby and sadly did not live past infancy. Although I was quite young, I still remember the tears, songs, and sadness surrounding the funeral of my younger brother. Winters in Huntington, Pennsylvania were very cold in contrast to the weather we had been accustomed to in Morocco. My parents kept us warm by shoveling coal into the coal-fired furnace. My father traveled a good deal on the East Coast to speaking engagements at different churches. I often accompanied him, which I thoroughly enjoyed. He donned his jalaba, displayed his map of the Middle East, and spoke to his listeners about Morocco. He told them of his conversion to Christianity, becoming a missionary, and his plans of eventually returning to his country to carry on his work. He also reminded his family regularly that we were Arab and we should return to Morocco as missionaries to our people. During the five years we lived in the United States, my father also worked for the Office of War Information, a forerunner of Voice for America, making Arabic-language broadcasts to the people of Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, and Egypt, telling them America was their friend, and encouraging them to help the United States in their struggle with Germany and Italy. 
1945, the war had ended, and we moved from Huntington, Pennsylvania, to Circleville, New York, in order to better prepare for our return to Morocco. Before our move to Circleville, I vividly remember my father's naturalization ceremony in Huntington when he became an American citizen, and we children were all given American flags. My sisters and I, of course, were American citizens from birth due to our mother's American citizenship. We arrived in Morocco in February 1947 during the winter rains. We lived in a villa or farmette on the coast between the capital city of Rabat and Casablanca, near a small town called Tamara. The walls of our French-style house were two feet thick, made of mortar and rock, somewhat like a fortress, with high ceilings and elaborate, beautifully tiled floors. Our only heat was from small kerosene heaters. Our villa never seemed to get warm the first month we were there. But when spring arrived, the French doors and prevailing wind from the ocean kept it quite pleasant. A wind charger provided our electricity. Because of post-war shortages, our storage batteries were old and couldn't hold a charge for more than five minutes. When the wind died down in the evenings, the lights would dim, and we knew it was time to light the kerosene lamps. The short winter was cold and damp, but most of the year was idyllic, with temperatures rarely below 45 degrees. A protected cove on the beach allowed us to enjoy swimming in the ocean, less than two miles from our house. The scenic countryside was fertile and very productive with an abundance of fruits and vegetables, including figs, grapes, oranges, and pomegranates. A small store nearby offered basic supplies, and my father enjoyed going into the open-air market to visit, witness, and do the daily shopping. We were somewhat isolated in Tamara, and my sisters and I played together a great deal. In the mornings, we were homeschooled, and in the afternoons, our mother would take a nap, leaving us free to entertain ourselves. One of our pastimes was a game we invented with the family's geese. While one of us distracted the geese at one end of their pen, the others would climb the fence and try to scramble across and over the opposite side before the geese recognized they had trespassers. If we were not fast enough, we carried the evidence of the wrath of Hisser and Weber on our legs the remainder of the afternoon. The four of us were avid readers. This, of course, was before computers, electronic games, email, and television— we read Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist, and the Pickwick Papers, and anything else we could get our hands on. My older sister Lily often read to us. Sometimes we read Bible passages out of context to bug a sibling, particularly our younger sister Ruth, who is the most buggable. For some reason, hearing that she was fearfully and wonderfully made sent Ruth in tears to our mother. We also enjoyed acting out the Bible meetings we had seen our father conduct in the States— our parents viewed this a bit suspiciously until they ruled out sacrilege and mocking and realized it was just harmless play. While the vast majority of American missionaries were tremendously caring, sacrificing, and warm people, some were bitter towards my father. Their prized convert had returned to Morocco as an American citizen and was conducting his ministry independently of them. The questions they presented to the U.S. consulate and French administrative government eventually led to the U.S. State Department bringing accusations against my father. Under the Freedom of Information Act, I recently obtained this file from the U.S. State Department. My father was accused of acquiring his American passport under false pretenses and never intending to remain in his adopted country. 
1948, he was forced to remain in the States to straighten things out. His contention to the U.S. State Department was that he was employed by a U.S. church group to work in a foreign country much like the employee of a corporation might be. Although the U.S. State Department ruled in my father's favor, he was absent for nearly a year while we remained in Morocco. It was while I was living in Tamara that I became better acquainted with my father's younger brother, Mohammed, who watched over us during my father's absence. He was an intelligent, resourceful person and proved invaluable to our family while my father was gone. He checked in on us often and hired a young man by the name of Bojema to chauffeur my mother and to teach her to drive. Bojema also accompanied us to a nearby beach, taught me to ride a horse and bicycle, and although older, became a friend. Although he taught me many things, he failed in his efforts to teach my mother to drive our 1946 Ford. I can still see the swarms of locusts that appeared in huge, dark, buzzing clouds and settled over areas of vegetation, stripping them clean in an amazingly short period of time. This was before DDT, and the clouds of swarming locusts sometimes caused traffic jams as the streets would be carpeted with dead locusts. I remember watching the little Gerber boys collect the locusts in empty tin cans to be roasted and eaten. Although the word gross wasn't in my vocabulary growing up in Morocco, it would have aptly described my reaction to anyone eating the abhorred locusts. Now, of course, I know locusts are an acceptable source of protein and that some Americans enjoy the delicacy of grasshoppers. Uncle Muhammad was concerned about our safety because we were living in an isolated region without our father. At his urging, we moved to Sifro, where my father's family lived. Living in the town of Sifro was a dramatic but welcomed change. My grandparents and aunts were warm, caring people. I became especially fond of my father's sister, Kanatza, because she could always make me laugh. In Sifro, my younger sister and I attended a French school, and my older sisters continued their homeschooling. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to make male friends my age and enjoyed attending the French school in spite of the harsh discipline I witnessed. Students were subjected to cruel and sudden pinching, twisting, and yanking of any body part and the humiliation of hard slaps in front of their peers. I made every effort to avoid being the target of my teacher's disapproval. On Thursday afternoons, our teachers would take us for a two-hour walk. We were allowed to take along a snack. My snack was always a bottle of milk and a sandwich. The French children, in French tradition, carried wine as their beverage of choice. They made a joke of my milk and called me Le Grand American, the big American. I told them drinking my milk was what made me bigger than any of them. Living in Sifro and attending school there made me much more aware of the prevailing and ever-increasing tensions among Moroccans regarding the French occupation in Morocco. The desire for independence was a steadily rising rumble beneath the surface of daily life. The sultan, the king of Morocco, had become a rallying point for independence and was very popular among Moroccans. In an attempt to address this problem, the French took him into forced exile thousands of miles from Morocco in Madagascar, resulting in an increase in the violence against the French colonists and their property. I recall my uncle not wanting to hold Christian meetings in his building as he was concerned that the French might regard the meetings as nationalist gatherings, which were illegal. Looking back on that period from the position of a retired history teacher, 
I realized that colonialism, which made the world powers of England, Spain, France, and Portugal, was waning. Democracy and nationalism were spreading throughout the world, and the fledgling United Nations echoed the theme of self-determination for all nations. The French gave up their occupation of Morocco in 1956 when Morocco finally gained her independence. Food preparation in Morocco is labor-intensive. Preparing meals and feeding guests is a welcomed opportunity to express the hospitality that is so much a part of Middle Eastern culture. Meals are served only after guests have washed their hands in the bowls provided for that purpose, and then they are eaten on low tables while sitting on pillows or mattresses on the floor. Tagine, a dish central to Moroccan meals, consists of seven vegetables cooked with meat and then is served in a tagine dish from which everyone eats. Although it is typical in Morocco to eat with one's well-scrubbed fingers, my mother preferred that we use spoons. The foods grown in Morocco are abundant and varied, and the methods of preparation vary widely from region to region. The common accompaniment to meals is mint tea, generously sweetened. Meals at my aunt's or grandmother's home often involved four or five courses, which had taken hours to prepare. They were events worth anticipating. Fifty years ago, the flat Moroccan rooftops were areas reserved exclusively for women and children. The rooftops were adult male-free sanctuaries where the women cooked, did laundry, and performed other chores. I enjoyed going up on my grandmother's roof as a child because I could see for miles around. My sisters delighted in letting me know when the time had come when I could no longer go up on the rooftops. Due to the lack of adequate water purification and sewage treatment systems, conditions in Morocco were unsanitary. Cows were not tested for TB, so the milk was carefully boiled the required 10 minutes to destroy bacteria. Tuberculosis, dysentery, and typhoid were common. Also common was trachoma, microscopic worms that were transferred from hands to eyes, eventually causing blindness. The pressure cooker my mother had brought with her from the U.S. was one of her prized possessions. My sisters and I were repeatedly warned not to eat salads or raw foods that could not be adequately washed or sterilized. Despite our warnings, Dorothy contracted typhoid at the home of a friend. She became extremely ill with a high temperature that continued for weeks. Typhoid causes your intestinal tract to become perforated and tender, preventing you from taking solid foods. Dorothy lost a great deal of weight, and her thick, dark hair fell out. Thankfully, she recovered and wore a scarf over her head until her hair grew out again. I remember making the mistake of teasing her by pulling off her head rag when she was well enough to fight back. We had lived in Safrol for four months when my father returned from the States, bearing gifts for all of us. The red and white American Schwinn bicycle he presented me is one of my fondest memories. The streets of Morocco are pedestrian-oriented, and European bicycles were a common mode of transportation. My red-and-white American bike was the envy of many, and I was very proud of it. Although my father traveled a lot, on the days he was home, he held daily Bible readings every morning before school. Sometimes these readings seemed to continue indefinitely. Worried about being late for school, I would fidget and squirm impatiently until I was near tears. Finally, my mother would intervene. My parents frowned on fighting, especially anything physical. While my sisters and I tried not to break the fighting rule, we regularly engaged in heated exchanges. 
When we were scolded, we insisted we had been arguing and not breaking the fighting rule. My older sister's quick mind always kept me on my toes. Sloppy thinking did not pay when you were in Lily's company. American troops stationed in Morocco during and following World War II got a kick out of teaching the Arab children naughty words and phrases. We would memorize the strange words and proudly repeat them later to parents and missionaries who were less than impressed. I also remember the beautiful, intriguing sound of the songs the French soldiers sang in the streets. While these sounds were alluring, the lyrics were inappropriate for small ears, but we learned those as well. If you were a male born in Morocco, you were automatically in the upper half of the population. Males, especially first-born sons, are placed on pedestals by their parents and taught from an early age that they are privileged individuals. Families are willing to make great personal sacrifices for their sons, especially first-born sons. There is no such thing as a non-working woman in Morocco. Women in Morocco are expected to marry, often as early as 14, be subservient to their husbands, raise the children, work wherever necessary, and tend the home. Sometimes physical and emotional abuses shadow their hard work. While today more Moroccan women work outside the home, they must get their husband's permission. Usually they work in textile, light industry, or as maids. While working, they are still responsible for the domestic chores in their own homes, including the labor-intensive Moroccan cooking. Fifty years ago, most Muslim marriages were arranged, but this is less the case today, especially in families where education is a priority for their sons and daughters. While physical abuse of a spouse is against the law now in Morocco, it is still common. Through sacrifice, courage, tears, and sometimes humiliation— Women have earned the right to work and have made progress in the 50 years since I have lived there. However, they have a long way to go to realize true equality. As my wife has observed, when a couple enters a restaurant in Morocco today, the waiter invariably asks the man if he wants to order for his companion, ignoring her altogether. Religion, social conservatism, and tradition continue to clash with the urgency of change in Morocco. My mother was an only child born late in life to her parents. I'm sure she was somewhat indulged and spoiled as a child. Being the sole focus of her parents may have made it more difficult for her to internalize the dynamics necessary for the give and take of a large family such as ours. My mother could be headstrong and very focused on what she wanted as an adult. My father, being the first-born son in a Muslim family, had a very similar mindset. Although my father rejected the Muslim faith in his youth, he internalized my grandfather's religious soul and the vigor, enthusiasm, and passion he brought to his faith. He simply transferred those qualities to the Christianity he came to embrace. He is thoroughly versed in both Muslim faith and Christianity. He speaks Spanish, Arabic, French, and English fluently. His daily trips to the market provide an opportunity for him to witness, persuade, argue, and debate all of which he thoroughly enjoys to this day. My mother longed to return to the United States. She may have blamed the death of my older brother Paul on Moroccan life. As my sisters grew up, she may have feared they would marry Moroccan men and spend their lives in Morocco. In addition, my mother's parents had returned to the United States, and she must have missed them. I too longed to return to America, where they had planes, trains, cars, and things exciting to young boys. Life in the West seemed much more progressive and promising.
My mother's wish to return to the U.S. deepened with the death of Grandfather Keller. Her mother was alone now and in poor health, and she needed her only daughter. My sisters were getting older, and my parents agreed their education should continue in the States. In addition, the Korean War had begun, and they were concerned that the situation might deteriorate as it had ten years before. In 1952, I was 14, and my parents planned our return to the United States. My sisters and I considered the trip with great anticipation, but with some trepidation as well. When we arrived in New York, our reintroduction to American life began with attending a two-week Bible camp in upstate New York. We played games, canoed, and for two weeks I didn't have to play or see much of my sisters, or they me. It was a great way to begin life in America. Although my mother, sisters, and I recognized the many blessings and opportunities afforded to us in the United States, my father struggled. He had been a big fish in a small pond in Morocco. His ties to his parents and siblings were extremely strong. His roots were in Morocco, and so was his comfort zone. He did not blend in with the nine-to-five mass, and he had no intention of remaining in America. While my father agreed that his children should be educated in the United States, he wanted my mother to leave us behind in the care of church friends and return to Morocco with him. Her response was that God had given her children and that she would be the one to raise them. My father had returned to Morocco alone. He came back to get my mother, but she remained with us in Sulphur Springs. I realized when my father returned to Morocco alone that our days of being together as a family were over. I was a big, gangly 14-year-old, but that did not prevent the tears from falling. It was a very sad day in my life. My mother encouraged my education, and I enjoyed school. I admired the coach and geography teacher at Sulphur Springs High School, who became instrumental in encouraging my developing interest in geography and history, and my eventual interest in the field of education. Following my graduation from high school, I spent two years in Miami, Oklahoma, attending junior college and playing football there before transferring to the University of Arkansas to complete my degree. I met my wife, Janice Rittershouse, who grew up in Springfield, at the University of Arkansas. There was nothing phony or pretentious about Janice. She was confident, capable, an excellent student, and impressive in her maturity. We began dating in the spring of my senior year and enjoyed a lovely semester of summer school together. After my graduation, I left for Virginia in September 1960 to attend Marine Officers Candidate School. In December, I signed a three-year contract with the U.S. Marine Corps. Janice remained behind to complete her senior year at the university, and we kept in touch through correspondence. When she came to visit me during Easter break, we became engaged. On January 1, 1961, in a ceremony at Cavalry Temple, Assembly of God Church in Springfield, Missouri, I married my best friend, business partner, lover, and the mother of my children. We have been married 41 years, and I have never looked back. A hidden bonus in my marriage to Janice was the mother-in-law who came with her. Not only was my mother-in-law an incredibly nice person, she was also very bright and practical, and a wonderful role model for our daughters. Although I had to leave my new bride for a 13-month tour overseas with the 3rd Marine Division in Okinawa, we still have the daily letters we wrote to one another during my absence. I had access to an MRC-83 single-sideband 50,000-watt Jeep radio, which allowed us to talk with ham operators in the States, who then connected me with my wife. 
we could visit on the phone at no cost, which fit our budget very well in those early days. The only constraints were that there could be an unlimited number of people listening to the conversation, and since it was a one-way mic, each time one of us finished a comment, it was necessary to say, over, before the other could begin talking. During my 13-month absence, Janice returned to graduate school at the University of Arkansas, where she completed her master's degree in psychology. Upon my return to the U.S. in September 1962, I traveled to Missouri, where Janice and I were reunited. In December of 1963, I was discharged from the USMC, and we traveled back to Springfield, Missouri. I went to graduate school for a year before taking my first teaching job at Hartville, Missouri. I completed my master's in education a year later. My graduate degree was from Missouri University, which at the time was offering a cooperative program at SMS. The analogy that comes to mind when I think of my children is that of a plane which leaves the hangar, taxis down the runway, and lifts off in flight. Kristen, our firstborn, was in flight coming right out of the hangar. She did everything early. She's always been bright, articulate, and competitive. Kristen and her husband, Mike, live in Overland Park, Kansas. Kristen, a pediatrician, is currently a stay-at-home mom to our three granddaughters. Kristen's birth in 1966 brought us such joy that we decided to try again when she was almost four. When my wife returned from her first visit with the doctor during our second pregnancy, she waddled in, placed an x-ray before me, and insisted, count them. I counted. There were two. In preparation for the new additions to our small family, we scrambled to double up on baby supplies. I learned later that twins run in my family. We still have the twins' prenatal x-ray on our freezer. Our identical twin daughters arrived July 10, 1970. The twins, Ellen and Elaine, have taken up a great deal more of the runway. Ellen is a case manager with the Missouri Division of Family Services in Springfield, and Elaine is an RN in St. Louis. They were a delightful experience growing up and kept us on our toes. They continue to be a marvelous blessing in our lives today. The twins are, of course, extremely close. As the girls grew up, Kristen loved to boss her little sisters. When Ellen and Elaine were four, I overheard them plotting revenge against their bossy big sister. Let's scream and get Kristen in trouble. Kristen, on the other hand, loved to tell the young twin sisters that one of them was adopted, which worried them a great deal as they tried to sort out which one it might be. Blessed with three beautiful daughters, it was especially important to me to empower our girls with the ability to make decisions and choices regarding their lives and to attain the education necessary to achieve financial independence. In this, my wife and I have been successful. It was also important to Janice and me that our daughters grow up in a stable Christian home without the moving, divorce, and uncertainty which had marked my own childhood. I consider this achievement to be one of the most meaningful in my life. My career as a teacher has given me the opportunity to share my love of history and geography with others and to influence youth at life's hopeful, optimistic beginning. Teaching has many rewards and was a satisfying career. It's interesting and often surprising to see how students who have passed through your classroom turn out later in life. After teaching for over 30 years, I've enjoyed the years since my retirement from teaching in 1994. I'm able to do things I never had the time for before. I keep myself busy around our home and especially enjoy spending time with Aaron, Becky, and Molly, our three super grandchildren.
My father remarried in 1964. He still lives in Morocco, but I speak to him weekly by phone. With her children grown and gone, my mother went back to school in her early 50s to pursue a nursing career. She found this very rewarding and regretted having to retire in her 70s. In December 1999, my mother began an 18-month struggle with cancer that took her life at the age of 91. Although my father came back to the States to visit every few years, I did not return to Morocco until 1992. Returning after 40 years to the kaleidoscope of sights, sounds, and smells that make up Morocco was quite an experience. Renewing acquaintances and seeing family I had not seen for 40 years was an emotional, rewarding experience. We have returned several times since. I like to walk the streets, visit the street vendors, and catch up on the many rapid changes taking place there. My childhood experience in Morocco has given me a keen appreciation for life in the United States. The modern medicine, clean food and water supply, and the many opportunities and freedoms granted men and women in America are blessings not to be taken for granted. The United States has been my home for over 50 years, but Morocco will always have its own special corner of my heart. This is an edited version of Kassara's story. You can read each story in its entirety at thelibrary.org or by clicking the link in the description of this post. The storykeeper for Edward Kassara is Brandy Gerhardt. Music is Bach Cello Suite No. 3 by Colin Carr at freemusicarchive.org under an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivative, 3.0 United States license. Story excerpts edited and read by Diana Dudenhafer. Mm-hmm.